This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley. The Academy Awards are less than a month away. Today, we continue our series of interviews with or about Oscar nominees. Sterling K. Brown has been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role in American fiction. The film has four other nominations, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. Brown also played prosecutor Christopher Darden in the miniseries The People vs. O.J. Simpson, winning an Emmy for that performance. He won another the following year for his performance in the popular NBC series This Is Us. Let's start with the film American Fiction. It stars Jeffrey Wright as a college professor and novelist who is black. It appears to him that the only books written by black authors that white publishers want to print are books about being poor or in gangs or addicted to drugs or being a pregnant teenager. So under a pen name, he writes a book conforming to those expectations to prove his point. He's offered a huge advance, and the book becomes a bestseller. Sterling K. Brown plays the writer's brother. He's a plastic surgeon who's currently having money problems because his wife has left him and has taken half his practice after discovering he's having gay relationships. Terry spoke with Sterling K. Brown in January. Sterling K. Brown, welcome to Fresh Air. So happy to have you on the show. Terry, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Did you experience any of the same type of preconceptions about what it means to be authentically black in your personal life or in your acting career? Uh, absolutely. I found it definitely when I got to Hollywood uh, in the early 2000s that the idea of being intelligence was something that I needed to shed. Um, many casting directors be like, he's got this smart guy thing. If he can lose that, then he'll be much more castable. Um, I, I think that similar to what you were saying in your intro with regards to the kinds of stories that um, folks were willing to put money into had to deal with black folks overcoming certain adversities and dealing with certain traumas. And I think that that was also linked to a certain socioeconomic um, wash that they thought was appropriate for how blackness needed to be portrayed in order to be, quote-unquote, authentic. When you were an economics major and then you interned at the Federal Reserve, did you want to be in business or economics? Yes. I, I think at that point in time in my life, Terry, the most important thing was being able to pour back into my community in a way that was substantial. And the only way that the primary way that felt most substantial was through financial resources. So my goal was to make money. I felt like my mom sent me to this fancy college prep school and I got into Stanford University. I felt like the most important thing that I could do to show my appreciation is make sure that I was able to be a contributing member of the family, uh, a contributing member of the community in terms of financial resources. So I said, what better way to make money than to be an economics major, learn what money does and how I can make more of it, right? And what I found through my first year at Stanford and through this internship at the Federal Reserve Bank was that while I was good with numbers, I wasn't really interested or passionate about 
the inner workings of what it took to make money. Like money in and of itself wasn't a driving force for me that motivated me to continue. I, I couldn't see a life just making money if, there was, if I wasn't doing something that excited me or ignited me in a more passionate, spiritual, holistic sort of way. Okay, so you, pa- you found the passion in acting. But this yeah. reminds me of a line that you say in American fiction. So, you know, your brother, the main character in the yeah. story, who's the novelist who can't get published, um, you say to him, like, you know, me and, and your sister, like, we're doctors. We save people. Like, what what can you do? Revive a sentence? And and so that reminds me, like, did you worry, like, okay, so I'm not going to give back to my community through learning about economics and money. Um, what will being an actor give back to my community? Like, what, what meaning does that have in the larger world? Great question. And it's something that I thought about for a while. Um, and so when I told my mom that I was going to change my major, I knew that she would probably have some questions for me in terms of why I wanted to do it. But most importantly, I had to let her know that I prayed about it. And I said, yes, ma'am, I had. And I felt led. And that gave her permission to give me permission to dive into it without any sort of regrets or second questioning. I want to talk to you about the role that you got your first Emmy for, and that's the role of Christopher Darden in The People vs. O.J. Simpson, which was the first season of American Crime Story. You won an Emmy in 2016. You were, you know, Darden was one of the prosecutors, one of the two prosecutors, um, and he was portrayed by O.J. Simpson defenders, by by people who thought O.J. was innocent, as having the job so that the prosecution could present a black face. Correct. But Darden really, I think, deeply believed in O.J.'s guilt. So I want to play a clip from the closing argument that you make in The People versus O.J. Simpson. Okay. So here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, to grasp this crime, you must first understand Mr. Simpson's relationship to his ex-wife, Nicole. It was a ticking time bomb. The fuse was lit in 1985, the very year they were married. Officers responded after Mr. Simpson beat Nicole and took a baseball bat to her Mercedes. Then in 1989, Nicole had to call 911 again, fearing for her life. When officers arrived, Nicole ran towards them, yelling, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. She had a black eye, a cut forehead, a swollen cheek. In her torn bra, Nicole pleaded with the officers, you've come up here eight times. You never do anything about him. And they want to tell you that the police conspired against Mr. Simpson. This case is not about the N-word. It is about O.J. Simpson and the M-word, murder. Now, I'm not afraid to point to him and say he did it. Why not? The evidence all points to him. In February 1992, Nicole filed for divorce. She was running away from the man who said he'd kill her. She saw the explosion coming. Why else fill a safe deposit box with threatening letters from the defendant a will, and police photos of past beatings. 
She knew that the bomb could go off at any second. And then it did. Now I'm going to skip ahead to the end of your closing argument. He's a murderer. And he was also one hell of a great football player. But he's still a murderer. When I saw the series, I thought, oh, you look so much like Christopher Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you're so good in it. Um, you, you. you were in college at Stanford during the trial. What did you think of O.J. at the time? Did you think he was guilty or innocent? I'm going to be honest and say, like, it was, um, it was a second consideration. It wasn't the first thing on my mind. I think that was sort of what a lot of us were experiencing was that we wanted the criminal justice system to work in favor of someone who looked like us because we were accustomed to it working against us. But in terms of like seeing someone beat the system who doesn't typically beat the system, I think that was the driving factor, at least for me, in terms of why I rejoiced in his innocence at the time, in the in the not guilty verdict, right? And it was such a strange thing to step into, Terry, having been so pro-OJ and anti-Darden um, as a young person, to have an opportunity to step into that other person's shoes and experience life from their perspective. And it was... Me and my friend Sarah Paulson had the best time on that show because she would read Marsha's book. I would read Chris's book. We would read excerpts to one another. We would go over the evidence, and, and the evidence is pretty overwhelming. I'll say this. That she she was the main prosecutor and your, your partner in the trial. Correct. So what changed your mind? Was it stepping into Christopher Darden's role, you know, becoming him for the— for the series, or was it examining the facts more closely? Yes. That's yes to both of them. Um, the, the DNA evidence is overwhelming. Um, my perspective as a human being has shifted in terms of, also in terms of playing Christopher Darden, like who was the voice for the people who were murdered? Um, they don't have anyone to speak for them. Uh, and so someone has to do it, right? Uh, even getting into Darden's book in terms of being a prosecutor, he's like, we need to have a black presence in all facets of law enforcement, um, whether that is as police, uh, whether that is as prosecutors, um, as defense attorneys, like a presence in all of those things means that we can work from the inside, um, and I, I think that that is sort of an admirable perspective that he has um, on how law enforcement can work at its best. So let's talk a little bit about This Is Us. And and this is a series, this was a series, an incredibly popular series uh, about three siblings. Um, and the white mother was pregnant with triplets, but only yeah. two children survived. So the father, who's also white decides like he'd planned on taking home three babies and that is what he's going to do. So yes, he adopts a baby born the same day who is left at the door of a firehouse. Now that baby is black. So you're the adult version of that black baby who grew up in the white family. So you're set apart from the family in two ways. You're the only black person in the family and you're only th- you're the only sibling who's not a twin. 
Yeah. And part of the series set in the present, you're married to a black woman, you have two children, and later adopt a third. So I want to play a scene from the first episode. You've been searching for your biological father, and you finally found where he lives. So you go, you drive over there, you bang on his door, and as soon as you, as soon as your biological father opens the door, you make a little speech. So let's start with the banging on the door. Hey, yeah, stop all that banging. I heard you the first time banging on the door. Who the hell is My not- name is Randall Pearson. I'm your biological son. 36 years ago, you left me at the front door. But now, hold on, just let me say this. 36 years ago, you left me at the front door of a fire station. Now, don't worry, I'm not here because I want anything from you. I was raised by two incredible parents. I have a lights-out family of my own. And that car you see parked out in front of your house cost $143,000, and I bought it for cash. I bought it for cash because I felt like it and because I can do stuff like that. Yeah. You see, I turned out pretty all right, which might surprise a lot of folks considering the fact that 36 years ago, my life started with you leaving me on a fire station doorstep with nothing more than a ratty blanket and a crap-filled diaper. I came here today so I could look you in the eye, say that to you, and then get back in my fancy-ass car and finally prove to myself and to you and to my family who loves me that I didn't need a thing from you, even after I knew who you were. You want to come in? Okay. I love how that ends. (laughs) So the father is played by Ron Cephas Jones, who died a few months ago. But I I love how you casually, how he casually invites you in (laughs) after this long... (laughs) negative harangue about him and you just say okay (laughs) talk about deciding how to play that and whether you talked about how to play those final notes whether you talked about it with Ron Cephas Jones so in that scene I remember thinking that what what I understood from reading the pilot of the show and what, what was very sort of surprising in terms of how it landed on people ultimately was that it made me laugh from beginning to end and and so I was always sort of focused on like the the amount of light that the show had. And so when people talk to me about it, they're always talking about the tears that the show caused. But I think both of those things are true. So I felt like in that scene, like you have to be able to, you can't live too much in one tone. Otherwise, the show becomes monotonous. So you're able to go in and you, you give this man a, the piece of your mind. But at the same time, all you really want is to be in relationship. And so you see that, that front-facing anger towards this man. But really what he wants is to be understood, to understand why he left in the first place, and ultimately to be loved. So Ron Cephas Jones, who was in that scene with you, your biological father in the series, he died a few months ago. And um, Andre Brower, who you also Mm. work with, and he died at the end of 2023. And then you also worked on Black Panther, and you knew Chadwick Boseman, who died um, of cancer at a young age, shocking everybody because he didn't make it public. I'm wondering if that made you think about your own mortality. Yes. First of all, yes. And I would say even predating all of those beautiful souls transpiring was my own father, um, who passed away at the age of 45. And so I've thought about it since then, when I was only 10 years old. Um, 
And my brother and I will have this conversation. My brother's 14 years older than me. So he's 61 now. And he'll always say that, you know, no black men in our family have lived beyond age 65. And I remember thinking that, like, that may be true for them, but it does not have to be true for us. And so I've, I've been very conscientious in terms of health and lifestyle choices that I try to make for myself to be here for as long as possible. I have two beautiful boys, uh, Andrew, 12, Amari, 8, and I want to be here to experience and enjoy them as much as possible. And beyond them, I'm looking forward to, if, if they indeed have children, to being able to enjoy and experience those young people as well. You know, one of the focal points of This Is Us is the loss of the father. So much of the story is flashing back to the impact of the father and the father's death on the three siblings' lives. So I want to mention another parallel between your life and your character Randall's life in This Is Us. Randall decides since he was adopted, he's going to kind of pay it back and adopt a girl. And the person who he adopts is in her teens and her mother is addicted to drugs, and that's why she needs a home. And, you know, your mother adopted two children when you were in college. Were they teenagers, too? And why did your mother decide to adopt two children at that stage in her life? Good question. They were not teenagers. They were babies. Oh, okay. Um, and, and so my Aunt Vera, who I adore... She's always a, my mom's little sister was the collector of of things in in her family's life like pets and stuff and you'd be like she got a new cat she got a new dog but my aunt Vera was also dealing with substance abuse issues at that particular time in her life uh, so she would buy get a dog go to the humane society get a dog get a cat or whatever and then she would be gone for a while so then that dog or cat became somebody else's my aunt was also fostering. Uh, my little brother, Robert, who is now 25 or 26 years old, just had a birthday, um, and she was fostering, and then she went missing for a period of two weeks. She had dropped the my little brother off at my mom's house, and my mom called the social worker after a day and said, listen, I want you to know this little boy is here with me. Social worker came to the house and said, are you okay to keep him? And my mom said, yes, Absolutely. So then my mom became the foster parent for my little brother, Robert. Then the birth mother for Robert, who was dealing with substance issues herself, was pregnant with twins, my little sister, Ariel, and my little sister, Avery. And the social worker said, would you be willing to take on these twins as well? And my mom said, yes. Now, I don't mention my little sister, Avery, that much because early on in her life, she um, passed away from SIDS. Um, and it was very difficult for my mom. She's like, why would God bring these children into my life to have one of them pass away? And for a minute was wondering whether or not she would wind up keeping them. But after a moment of just saying, like, my life is more full and rich with them in it than without them, she decided to continue fostering. And then another two years later, wound up going through the formal adoption process And so my brother Robert and my little sister Ariel have been with us for 25 and 23 years now. And uh, my little sister Avery 
similar to um, Kyle is the young man's name, and this is us, the third of the triplets that didn't make it, is uh, went on to sing with the angels. Well, that's quite a story. Yeah. So it's, uh, I have quite a mom. I, I have to say that, too. She's, she's an extraordinary human being. Um, there's so much that you must have related to in This Is Us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to our show. It's really been great to talk with you. Terry, the pleasure has been all mine. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to doing it again. Me too. Sterling K. Brown speaking to Terry Gross in January. He's nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his performance in the movie American Fiction. Coming up, another of this year's Oscar nominees, Coleman Domingo, star of the movie Rustin, about civil rights leader Bayard Rustin. And Justin Chang reviews the new movie Drift. I'm David Biancooley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Actor Coleman Domingo has been nominated for an Oscar for his title role in the film Rustin, the biopic about civil rights leader Bayard Rustin. Rustin was the chief organizer of the 1963 March on Washington, in which Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. The march drew about 250,000 people from around the country, and it was Rustin who oversaw the planning and logistics. It was Rustin who also introduced the idea of passive resistance to Martin Luther King. But Rustin was gay, and in 1963, several civil rights leaders feared that his homosexuality could discredit Rustin, the march, and the larger movement. For that and other reasons, Rustin was forced to remain in the background. President Obama did his part to credit Rustin in 2013 by posthumously awarding him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The film, Rustin, was produced by the Obama's production company, Higher Ground. It was directed by George C. Wolfe. Rustin also recently played Mr. in the new film adaptation of The Color Purple and won an Emmy for his performance in the series Euphoria. Terry Gross interviewed Coleman Domingo last December. Let's start with a scene from Rustin. Bayard Rustin knows there's pressure on him to resign from any role in the march and to resign from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was led by King, played by Amel Amin. 
Rustin tries to convince King that the movement should resist the threats of blackmail or smear campaigns targeting Rustin's homosexuality. Each of us are taught in ways both cunning and cruel that we are inadequate and complete. And the easiest way to combat that feeling of not being enough is to find someone we consider less than. Less than because they are poorer than us, or because they are darker than us, or because they desire someone. Our churches and our laws say they should not desire. When we tell ourselves such lies, start to live and believe such lies, we do the work of our oppressors by oppressing ourselves. Strong Thurman and Hoover don't give a about me. What they really want to destroy is all of us coming together and demanding this country change. Are they expecting my resignation? Some are, yes. Then they're going to have to fire me because I will not resign. On the day that I was born black, I was also born a homosexual. They either believe in freedom and justice for all, or they do not. Coleman Domingo, welcome to Fresh Air. You're terrific in this movie, and I would be shocked if you were not nominated for an Oscar. Oh, Terry, thank you so much for having me. That means the world. Thank you. You know, I knew so little about Bayard Rustin. I grew up with his name. I heard his name. But he was like a guy in the civil rights movement. That's about all I knew about him. What did you know before you were asked to do the movie? I knew a little bit more than most people. And I think any any of the listeners out there will question why they didn't know about him. He was all but erased in the history books. I stumbled upon him. uh, I was a student at Temple University in Philadelphia, and I joined the African-American Student Union in my junior year. And I think we were just having a discussion about the civil rights movement and some of its leaders. And then they were describing Bayard Rustin. And Bayard, the more that someone described him, I became more fascinated. The fact that he was a Quaker and from Westchester, Pennsylvania, that he was... Uh, he played the lute, and he sang Elizabethan love songs. He was a star athlete. He staged, you know, sit-ins and, and protests when he was a teenager, and he organized a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. I was like, wait, what? How come we don't <laughs> yeah. know about this person? Mm-hmm. This is a person of such size and someone who seems to be full in their experience in the world. How is it possible that he's been erased from history? But of course, I understood once I found that he was openly gay, I understood exactly why. And did you know at that point that you were gay? Did I know at that point that I was gay? I knew. I think I always knew. I grew up in inner city, West Philadelphia, and you know, you, I think people know. You know. Uh, but then I was coming to terms with my own sexuality probably at the same time that I that spark of understanding who by Rustin was in the world. And I think... Um, I sort of maybe quietly and privately looked at Byatt Rustin as a North Star, someone who not only was um, true to himself and his experience and his sexuality, but with limitless possibilities of what he could do, what he could be. He didn't marginalize himself. And so I must have downloaded that information in some way, shape, or form, and that's sort of helped me live my life completely and wholly uh, I'm 54 years old, and I think uh, he was very purposeful to me at a, at a young age. 
So who did you talk to? There's still some contemporaries of Bayard Rustin's who are alive, who worked with him on the March on Washington. Were you able to talk with any of them? Oh, absolutely. I was able to talk to, um, in particular, Rochelle Horowitz, who's featured in the film, played by Lily Kay. Uh, Rochelle Horowitz and I, we actually have a text feed. We, um, she texts me <laughs> pretty much every day now. I think we just really share a, a kindred spirit. And so I'm able to ask her private questions, things that like maybe have helped inform some of my choices, but also things that m- may not have. I just wanted to know the soul of this guy. And um, I literally was just at Walter Nagel at his apartment, which was he and Byard's apartment. He still lives in the very same apartment. And there, there were a couple for about 10 years from 1977 until, yeah. uh, B- until Byard's passing. death. Yeah, yeah and, and Walter Nagel and I had lunch. Uh, it was the first time I, w- I went over to Byard's apartment, and it looked like time stood still. It was amazing. Walter Nagel has been the keeper of Byard's legacy, and um, there's all this religious sculpture and art and books and records and walking sticks because Byard Rustin was a collector of everything. He, wherever he traveled, he got a lot of stuff. Now, the woman who you mentioned, Rochelle, um, what was her role in the march? Her role in the march? She organized transportation oh, her. Okay. for the march in yeah. Washington. And <laughs> yeah. she was only she was 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. What did you do to try to get his voice and his way of speaking? He had a very formal way of speaking, I think. Well, it was formal, but it was also um, he created it. <laughs> he created his accent, right? Oh yeah, he, he created his accent. He he. As I was doing research and I was, you know, finding any materials that I can find of interviews, debates, you name it, I noticed he had sort of a somewhat mid-Atlantic standard accent, um, very much akin to like Catherine Hepburn or Betty Davis. And at times it would sound a bit more British, and at times it would sort of fall away. And I was like, wait a minute, this guy's from. Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm from Philadelphia. <laughs> we don't sound like that. Yeah, they're, they're but, uh, close to each other. They're yeah, they're pretty close to each other. Close to each other. Yeah. So I was like, mm, something's going on there. And I asked Rochelle Horowitz. I said, well, where'd that accent come from? And she said, well, he made it up. And I thought, wait, what? He made it Who makes up an accent? Well, this guy does, which is brilliant. But he made it up for a couple reasons. One in particular is that he had a uh, speech impediment. He used to stutter. So he would do work to make sure he was clear in his language. And he would also heighten it because he was a bit of a, he just was obsessed with anything British. That pitch of his voice in the march is even fuller than actually really. I mean, it was even higher pitch. It was a bit more like up here. And he would do, you know, flourish it a bit more up here, even more so. I was trying to find ways how he used it in different scenes, whether he was with, you know, members of the NAACP or or when he was just in private and then when it fell away, when he was a bit more vulnerable. So I had to figure out how to calibrate it for a film. But in reality, it was all over the place. In every recording, it's it's something else. Now, you mentioned he had a stutter. You had a lisp when you I were did. young. Did you have a stutter too? No, you did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, I had a lisp. I had speech classes up until I was about 11 to 12 years old where I would have to go into with a speech therapist in school and dentalize my T's and S's and X's and just really learn how to use my my teeth and my tongue because I was an avid reader. I read everything. But I think it just gave me more confidence to have um, a love for language. I think that's where my love for language started in speaking Again, we, we have a similarity in that way, me and Bayard, where we had something to overcome when it comes to language. And I think it's made us um, 
I don't know, I, I love speaking. I, I'm not afraid of uh, coloring my words. <laughs> well, it's probably really good training for theater, but also really good training for learning how to speak differently, like learning how yeah. to speak like Rustin, because you learned how to speak without your lisp. Yeah, and I also had, when I was um, portraying Rustin, I had to uh, wear uh, prosthetics uh, for my upper teeth because yeah. he had, yeah, go ahead. He had yeah. three teeth out. Mm-hmm. So that was also something I had to put those uh, prosthetics in uh, like at least an hour and a half before. So usually when we get to set up, put them in immediately. And I would start working with my mouth to make, because Byard speaks a lot and he speaks with alacrity <laughs> and he's got a lot to say. So that was a great challenge, but I think it also gave me a slight lisp like he had, which was pretty oh. awesome. Yeah, I was wondering mm-hmm. about those teeth. He got his teeth knocked out. In 1942. When, yeah, when yeah. he refused to move to the back of the bus. Yeah, well, and, one one he was one of the first people doing these bus protests. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so I was wondering, I was wondering, up. like how you, I was thinking you didn't have your teeth pulled. Um, I was, I was <laughs> no, hoping you didn't. That. I'm like, I am not that method. <laughs> yeah, actor. I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm not that insane. When you were doing like speech therapy to overcome your lisp, and you learned how to, to like pronounce your T's clearly and and your S's, and you learned to like really clearly enunciate. Yes. Were you considered phony? When you started speaking that way, no, I wasn't. I, I think at least I, I don't think I was, because I would say things like I would go boxes, you know, and I would have to just like dentalize and keep that tongue behind the teeth. Boxes, boxes, boxes. You know, it's funny. I still warm up very much when I do my warm ups in the morning before I'm acting. I warm my whole mouth up because it's just a habit that I need to do to make sure my my mouth is operating and doing the thing I need it to do. But um, I think every so often, I feel like even if you've gone through some any sort of speech therapy, at times you you can hear it it slip once in a while. It's ingrained in some way, although we do the work to overcome it. Can you share some of what your uh, vocal warm up is like? Sure. <laughs> I would, let's say I would start by going. Um, I love to do things with T's and uh, with language. I would say. One fat hen, one fat hen, a couple of ducks, three brown bears, four slippery sliders, five freakish felines freaking frantically, six Assalian sailors sailing the seven seas, simple, seven simple Simon, see, Se- that's the hardest one, <laughs> seven simple Simon sitting on a stump, eight egotistical egotists eagerly echoing egotistical ecstasies, nine nibble, nit, nit, nibble, nibble, nut, nut on a cigarette butt. <laughs> That's great. Did you make those words up? Did you make those phrases up? No, I didn't make those phrases up. They came from, you know, it's all these theater games. Some some teacher taught me that years ago. But it really opens your mouth up. And you also, you know, and you get your nasal passages open. You get your, your ping sound. So if I'm working on stage, I want to make sure that I, I'm supporting my voice and the, somebody can hear it in the 1,000th seat on Broadway, you know? Coleman Domingo speaking to Terry Gross last December. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. 
According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. So you are really uh, at an incredible point in your career now. Like, it seemed like you were really at a turning point about 13, 15 years ago. I mean, you were in the uh, off-Broadway, then Broadway musical Passing Strange, which was adapted, which it was filmed by Spike Lee and show, shown on public television. You were in the Scottsboro Boys, a Kander and Ebb musical. Um, and then you ended up bartending again and thinking that yeah. you had studied photojournalism. You're thinking, well, maybe I'll just go into doing headshots for yeah. people in movies and, and TV. And then you got a part on Fear the Walking Dead <laughs> and that turned things back around again. But here you are in like two of the biggest end of the year movies. Um, and you're in your, you're 54 now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what's it like for you to be in this totally different professional space hmm. right now in your life after almost giving it up a few years ago? Yeah, you know what? I've been I've been working now for what thirty three years, and I think I made a commitment early on that it was the life of an artist. That I always thought I was successful if I just got paid for doing what I love, and I was just committed to the work. and And so, even when I started out in, you know, educational theater tours, and also you know off Broadway regional theater, I performed in probably at least fifty regional theaters around the country. I have off Broadway credits. I've, you name it. Just I just wanted to work and do good work, though. Being very specific about being useful uh, with work. And so by the time I finished the Scottsboro Boys in London in uh, 2013, I thought this was everything I wanted to do. I literally was nominated for an Olivier. And then I came back to New York and I was being offered these uh, auditions, not even offers, auditions for like, you know, under five. In our, in our business, it's like under five lines. And I just thought, I don't think I'm being used properly. And I think it's time to do something else. And I went home one day after a series of disappointments. And one in particular was uh, I auditioned for Boardwalk Empire to play uh, the host of, of a club. And the cast director brought me in. She said, oh, you're perfect for this. You're perfect. We need a song and dance man. We need a charismatic guy to be the host of this club, Chalky's Club. And I thought, oh, great, wonderful. I auditioned for it. They love it. They call me in for um, a producer session. I go in there. I kill it. So I go to the gym, and I'll never forget this day. And my agent calls, and she says, Coleman. I thought, here, this is it. This is something, something. I need something. She says, Coleman, hi. Um, she said, um, I just heard back from Boardwalk Empire. I was like, okay. And she said, they loved you. Okay, casting loved you, producers, direct, everyone loved you. You were great, and they wanted to say thank you and all your work. I said, okay. And she said, but unfortunately, one of the researchers poked their head up and said, oh, but did you know that hosts of these clubs were all light-skinned Oh, and at that time? You're kidding. And I literally screamed in this gym, and I burst into a puddle of tears after screaming, 
And my agent was so upset. She said, oh, my God, Coleman, why are you, why are you, why are you? I said, I can't. I can't take this anymore. I can't do it. And as I was processing that, my dear friend, Daniel Breaker, I was telling him this. I said, I, I, I'm done. He said, okay. He said, uh, you know, my managers have been wanting to meet with you for years. I said, no, 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 I just got rid of my manager. I'm, I'm going to wrap things up. He said, hmm. He talked to them. He said, they, they really just wanted to meet with you once. I said, okay, for you. So I go into this meeting, and I have my arms folded, and I know I had a bit of an attitude. It, I wasn't the bright, fuzzy, warm person that I think I know myself to be. I sat there and I said, well, this is what I do. I do this, this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm done with this. And they were like, well, we would love to work with you. I said, well, how about we give it six months and see? We can see. And then my very first audition with this new agent, who I'm still with, and the new managers, was for Fear the Walking Dead and also uh, uh, the Baz Luhrmann show, The Get Down. I booked both roles off of self-tapes. And I realized at that point, you know, I was with an agency. They were wonder She was lovely and wonderful, but I guess they had no access. So my tapes were not being seen. I think none of my works are being seen oh, for years. Wow, I wow. think that I, I didn't have access. But suddenly, I get series regular off of one self-tape audition. So it reinvigorated my, my faith in what I had to give. And Fear the Walking Dead really changed, changed my life. It gave me... Um, it set me up differently in this world. And now I feel very peaceful, actually. I feel that I'm being seen the way that I see myself. I'm happy for you. And I want Thank to congratulate you. you on the success you're having now between the Emmy for Euphoria and your two new movies, Rustin and The Color of Purple. Congratulations. Thank you, Terry. This has been really wonderful. Coleman Domingo speaking to Terry Gross last December. He's nominated for an Oscar in the Best Actor category for his starring role in Rustin. The Academy Awards are March 10th. For longer versions of today's interviews, visit the Fresh Air website. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews Drift, a new independent film now in theaters. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com thematic investing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. In the new independent drama Drift, Cynthia Arrivo plays a West African refugee struggling to survive in Greece after fleeing from tragedy back home. It's the latest movie from the Singaporean writer-director Anthony Chen, and it's now playing in theaters. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. If you were watching the Super Bowl the other night, 
You might have seen the just-released trailer for the upcoming movie adapted from the Broadway musical Wicked. Whether it turns out to be any good or not, I'm curious, if for no other reason than the chance to see Cynthia Erivo in a leading role. Not every actor can hold her own opposite wall-to-wall CGI, with or without witchy green makeup. But after her magnetic performances in thrillers like Bad Times at the El Royale and Widows, and her steely groundedness as Harriet Tubman in the drama Harriet, I like Erivo's odds. Her latest impressive showcase can be found in the independent drama Drift, in which she plays a Liberian refugee named Jacqueline. We first see Jacqueline sitting quietly on the shore of an unnamed Greek isle. She keeps to herself, even as she walks along a beach crowded with tourists, strolls past open-air markets, and sips coffee at an outdoor cafe. The scenery is gorgeous, but Jacqueline seems blind to its beauty. We don't yet know what she's been through, but the restrained anguish of Erivo's performance suggests the very worst. For food, Jacqueline subsists on sugar packets and tries to sneak leftovers from restaurants. When she needs money, she wanders the beach, offering foot massages to sunbathers. On those rare occasions when she speaks, she does so with an English accent. And the movie shows us fragmented flashbacks to a time when she was living happily in London. But in the course of those flashbacks, we learn that Jacqueline recently made a trip to see her family in Liberia, and that something terrible happened while she was there. The details are kept pretty vague, but we start to piece it together once Jacqueline strikes up a conversation with an American tour guide named Callie, who's leading travelers through the ruins of an ancient mountainside village. Callie, as played by Alia Shawkat, is so friendly and easygoing that Jacqueline can't help but warm to her. But she's still pretty guarded, and at one point she lies and says she's traveling in Greece with her husband. Still here. It's a beautiful spot. I used to cycle up here to catch the sunrise before I got tired and jaded. Are you here alone? Um, no, I am. Um husband's asleep. When we go on holiday, he gets, he sort of just collapses. Somewhat of a workaholic. Oh, I know this type of husband. Nancy wants to know if there are restrooms around it. She can't wait. Unless Nancy fancies the bushes. Oh. You're welcome to join us, if you like. Um, I will, of course, pay you. Now, please, just buffer me from this lot. Drift was adapted by Suzanne Farrell and Alexander Maxick from Maxick's 2013 novel called A Marker to Measure Drift. The movie was directed by the Singaporean filmmaker Anthony Chen, who years ago made the wonderful coming-of-age drama Ilo Ilo. Drift is Chen's first English-language film and his first feature set outside Singapore, which is fitting for a movie about wandering in a strange land. And indeed, Drift at times feels wobbly and unsure of its footing as it gradually unravels Jacqueline's story. I'm generally not an admirer of narratives as flashback-heavy as this one, in which the past keeps jutting insistently into the present. 
There's something a little too mechanical about the way Jacqueline's story leaps backward and forward through time. Inevitably, the movie gets to the tragedy in Liberia itself and handles it sensitively. It's difficult to watch, but it doesn't feel exploitative. Even so, what's most fascinating about Jacqueline's journey is the part that remains unexplained. We never learn how she found her way from Liberia to Greece, or if she wound up in Greece through chance or by choice. You have to wonder if Jacqueline, still in shock and unwilling to return to her former life in London, has chosen to dwell in a sort of limbo. Becoming a refugee could be her way of retreating from the world. That makes Drift very different from the countless recent films that have been made about the international migrant crisis, including the documentary Fire at Sea, the horror movie His House, and the recently Oscar-nominated Italian drama Io Capitano. What also distinguishes Drift is the friendship that movingly develops between Jacqueline and Callie as they slowly open up to each other about their personal experiences. Erivo and Shawkat are wonderful on screen together. Even before Callie knows the full truth about what Jacqueline has been through, she seems to see and understand her in a way no one else does. Drift wisely avoids sentimentality here. It doesn't pretend that Jacqueline can ever be fully healed of her pain. But by the end, her eyes seem a little more open than before, as if she had finally begun to see the beauty of the world again. Justin Chang is a film critic for The New Yorker. He reviewed the new movie, Drift. On Monday's show, the -the behind-the-scenes battles that have shaped the Academy Awards, a talk with New Yorker staff writer Michael Shulman, author of the book Oscar Wars. It's about the ongoing tensions over race, gender, and representation, and earlier conflicts dating back to the founding of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which administers the Oscars. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David Biancooley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. With benefits kicking in as close as 100 miles from home, you can protect your travel plans whether you're driving across state lines or flying cross-country. Learn more at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.